0: This is James Eklund and you lucky and gorgeous people are listening to the water values podcast.
1: The water values podcast is sponsored by the following market leading companies and organizations by black and beach building a world of difference by Trinex trust in what's next by mentor APM intelligent asset management software built for water by Woodard and Curran, high-quality consulting engineering, science, and operations services. By Intera, Innovation and Stewardship for a Sustainable Tomorrow. By Xylem, Let's Solve Water. And by the American Water Works Association, dedicated to the world's most important resource. This is Session 239.
2: Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGimsey. Hello and welcome
1: to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter said, my name is Dave McGimsey and thank you so much for joining me. Well, I hope everyone is having a great summer in the Northern Hemisphere and a great winter down in the Southern Hemisphere. Well, apologies that I forgot to mention in my sign-off uh, during the last episode of June that I took a summer hiatus for July. Uh, I would guess I was just too excited to take that, uh, that month of July off and enjoy the summer, so apologies for that. Regardless, we have a great show for you today as Olga Morales-Pate joins us to discuss her work at the Rural Community Assistance Partnership, or RCAP for short, and she is the CEO at RCAP and Olga gives an absolutely terrific interview that offers some very incisive insights into small systems and the challenges that go along with those smaller systems. So stay tuned. We've got a great interview with Olga Morales Pate coming up. Well, as you know, we always say thank you to our awesome sponsors at the top of the show. The Water Values Podcast is sponsored by Black & Veatch, Trinex, Mentor APM, Woodard and Curran, Interra, Xylem and the American Water Works Association. That, my friends, is a terrific collection of impactful companies that have decided to support water industry education and thought leadership by sponsoring this podcast. Thank you all, and I'd like for you, the listener, to do me a favor, if you would, please, if you work for or with any of these sponsors, please thank your boss or thank your contact at the sponsor firm and tell them that you appreciate their leadership in the industry through the sponsorship. That simple little note of thanks will go a long way, believe me. And as long as you're letting the sponsors know you appreciate their support of water industry education and thought leadership, why not leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, CastBox, or whatever other podcast directory you're accessing the podcast on. It would greatly be appreciated and, of course, helps others find out about the podcast. And also, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Well, before we head on to the interview with Olga, let's get to our Bluefield on Tap segment with Bluefield Researches reese tisdale so take it away guys reese welcome to another bluefield on tap it feels like it's been a while how you been
0: well it's summertime i know how you (laughs) like to relax during the summer so uh it things are good things are good um you know it feels like it's going fast and furious but hey that's the way it goes
1: yeah if only the summer had been relaxing um so it's it's been a couple months since we talked since we had you last on for the june release of uh the Bot episode. So, what have you got for us this week? You know what? What's big in water uh, as we turn the calendar over to August?
0: Well, I mean, um, there's always something happening, uh, as we know. But um, one of the things I thought that would be of interest to you and your listeners is the 3M settlement uh, regarding PFAS and its obligations. While they haven't admitted that they did anything wrong they've seemed to have settled for about 10 and a half to 12 billion dollars in not only the state of south carolina so (laughs) uh which is where i'm from so and actually i know the judge who presided over the case but um yeah it's um interesting to see that that's happening there it looks like there's going to be some movement going forward in pfos treatment
1: so uh, besides looking for you on the PFAS documentary about Netflix, since you know the judge, um, what can you kind of tell us a little about the parameters of the settlement and what, what the outlook is uh, for the water industry based on that settlement?
0: Yeah, so basically, you know, they just settled in, I think, mid to late June, 3M did. I think they need to sort of finalize things, but they agreed to... A payout of about 10 and, 10 and a half to $12 billion to a, an identified set of water utilities. Um, it's going to roll out in two phases. The utilities, I mean, the way to look at it is there are some that have already identified PFAS in their drinking water, and that's really the folks, not not wastewater or biosolids in this case. But there are about 4,400, 4,500 utilities that have identified PFAS. They will receive funding to actually treat the uh, treat the contaminants. Um, there are another eighty five hundred or so utilities that are expect are suspected to have PFAS, so they're going to be compensated for monitoring and essentially one way to put it is doing an inventory to see what their water levels look like when it comes to the emerging contaminants. And so they're you know it's a significant amount of money overall that's that's hitting the street. Um, and I think it's rapidly changed between that and the Infrastructure Investment Jobs Act, which also put $10 billion towards PFAS. We're now looking at 20 to $25 billion that are allocated at least one form or another to dealing with PFAS, which is now the topic du jour.
1: $20 billion sounds like a lot, but I think, I mean, it might just be a drop in the bucket in terms of total remediation costs.
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, it, you know, I was sort of doing some back-of-the-envelope numbers that, you know, Black & Veatch had come out with average remediation costs at about, I think it was $6,700, $6, $7,000 $7, um, per, if I'm doing my numbers correctly, per uh, per system. So it, it's going to be expensive. I think the bigger challenge is getting people to do the inventorying. It is ubiquitous. It is everywhere. It is. It's going to add up really quickly, um, and I think we may have talked about this in the past. I mean, in the near term, for drinking water, activated carbon players, which is the cheapest option for treatment, um, is going to be the, the the first choice of uh, technology or solution. But then there's this really gives an opportunity for ion exchange and maybe even reverse osmosis to be deployed. Uh, going forward. So that's going to probably show up on the uh, technology or solution adoption curve.
1: Yeah, that was was kind of my next question is, with all this money flooding into the PFAS treatment market, who stands to benefit?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think obviously, I mean, to that point, you know, someone like Calgon Carbon or Cabot, who does the activated carbon, I think one of the challenges they're going to have is the recycling of the or what are they gonna do with the used up activated carbon? It's got to either go somewhere somehow, so is it gonna to go to landfills? What landfills is it gonna to go to? So there may be some additional cost implications there that they're gonna to have to address that haven't shown up historically uh but other when it comes to ion exchange companies like evoqua or xylem now if you will they're gonna benefit because they do have that technology and solution, and then r o is obviously well-known and they're key players within that market oddly enough guess who makes uh reverse osmosis membranes 3m so, <laughs> <laughs> so it'll be interesting to see how it plays out And the three as far as 3m goes they're not the only one that's uh, reached a settlement dupont Kimors, they've reached a settlement not all that long ago for uh, a little under two billion dollars and Solvay as well in new jersey so there are and there are additional settlements or legal um discussions happening uh, that could add more to the pot as well
1: PFAS, right now there are no um, let's just say enforce regulations but we know that proposed rulemaking uh, is ongoing and expect a final rule some at some point in the near future do you have any uh, updates on that
0: Yeah, I mean, I think what's, so the EPA guidelines, they've just rolled out their MCL target of uh, four parts per trillion, uh, which is lower than everybody expected. But I think, so not only have they taken a more stringent approach uh, as far as levels go, this is going to apply to every state. So now, as far as Bluefield's forecast goes, in which I think we last forecasted last year, looking at 12 to 14 states with with their own individual regulations or policies in place with targets, uh, we're looking at about 6 to $7 billion through 2030. With the M- new MCLs from the EPA, if it can actually be enforced, and we're going to see how that's going to roll out over the next year, once that happens, once we get in 24, 25, 26, and they ultimately have to be enforced if they sort of follow this path, the market more than doubles. It goes up pretty significantly um over thirteen to fourteen billion uh in total and probably even more than that, quite honestly, uh once we realize where it all is. Uh so there's definite implications there when it comes to the EPA. I think Will it be challenged like we've seen with um, you know the clean, uh, waters of the U.S. with SAC versus the EPA? Or are we going to see something similar like West Virginia versus the EPA with the Clean Air Act? What's the authority of the EPA to enforce this? We'll see how that plays out. But you're a lawyer. You probably know more about that than I do.
1: <laughs> yeah, let's, let's we'll find that out. Uh, so we've been talking about drinking water, right? Are there any implications for the wastewater industry? Are there any because you can you can take it out before it goes to the people but can you also take it out before it re-enters the environment so
0: yeah i think one of the biggest challenges is the biosolids there's still an unknown about how to address the wastewater and the biosolids really that come out of that treatment um you know the, you know actually as the company we did a field trip out to deer island which is one of the largest wastewater facilities it's uh, mwra in boston um, it's a massive facility, and we're talking about biosolids, biosolid treatment, because with their biosolids, they um, send it off, and it's they have a contract with someone they reuse it for fertilizer. So, um, well, whether people want to know that or want to think about that, that's the reality. It happens all over the U.S., and in fact, some utilities have their own biosolid fertilizer products that they're using in some way, that's, that's going to have to ultimately stop, I suspect, in one way or another. There's going to have to be some way to remove those biosolids because otherwise it's just a vicious cycle, right? Just stopping it at drinking water isn't necessarily going to stop it because the pathway into whether it be into the system is not always just drinking water. It's whether it be through food products or even other materials, even your takeout food containers. It sounds like if you read the news, uh, it seems to be everywhere. It is ubiquitous for sure.
1: Well, Reese, as always, great information and great catching up with you again after a nice summer. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much.
0: All right, Dave. This is great. Good to see you again.
1: As always, great information from Bluefield Research and Reese Sisdale. Now it's time for the main event, the interview with Olga Morales-Pate. So let's get that water flowing. Well, Olga, welcome to the Water Values Podcast. Great to have you on. How are you today?
2: David, thank you for the invitation. What a great opportunity. I'm doing wonderful. Really excited to have the opportunity to chat with you. Yeah, I'm very
1: much looking forward to our conversation today. Uh, For starters, could you please give us a little on your background and how you came to the water sector?
2: That's a great question, and I really love to talk about that. You know, it's a long history. I've been in water for over 20 years at this point, and it started back in a chemistry lab. I come from the state of New Mexico, and uh, New Mexico first um, assumed primacy of the Safe Drinking Water Act back in the early 90s. And I was working in chemistry lab and was able to work with the lab to set up the uh, certification or to, to obtain certification to a test for the safe drinking water requirements, um, and obviously on water sampling from there, I moved to the state. I was a regulator for drinking water systems for a number of years and then realized that, you know, I was not very effective at writing compliance letters to communities. It was really not getting to to results, in my opinion. And um, somehow I learned about RCAC, which is the Western RCAP, and uh Ended up working with them. I was supposed to try it out and see if I liked it. Well, I'm still here 20 plus (laughs) years later and I'm still liking it and I'm still finding out great things about it. So that's how I have um, established a 20 plus year career in in water and still loving it.
1: That's great. That's awesome. Uh, Can you talk a little about what give us a give us a, a now a thumbnail on what RCap is and what it does?
2: definitely. So RCAP is, um, it's a wonderful place, obviously. Um, RCAP is a national nonprofit made up of a network of nonprofits, regional. It's a total of six regions that we are, you know, including RCAP, that we're the seventh. We cover, we provide technical assistance um, in all 50 states and the territories. So we have a very, Extensive territory to cover or area to cover, rather. And uh, the work that we do is very local um, at the local level. We work with communities, um, primarily utilities, be it operators or decision makers, staff, um, volunteers, in a lot of cases, board of directors, council members, and and alike, on developing the capacity to operate the utilities. Um, it could be, you know, on the technical side, it could be on the financial side, it could be on the managerial side, whatever assistance they, um, they need. And so our has been doing that for 50 years. We just had our 50th anniversary.
1: Now, let me ask you this. Oh, yeah. How did our get started? Do you, I mean, I know you weren't there when it started, but do you have any idea like how, how it came into being?
2: I don't have the full, um, History of how RCAP came about, but it had a lot to do with the um, the Clean Water Act and the Safe Drinking Water Act. The happening of those two federal laws and uh, the need for assistance to communities to be able to become to get into compliance with those two laws.
1: That makes a lot of sense. I I didn't connect that mm-hmm. up, so I appreciate you pointing that out. Um, so, how do you get your message out? How do communities hear about you? How do you how do you you know, how do you find the communities that need need help?
2: A lot of times um, communities find out about us um, by word of mouth. Sometimes, you know, we have over 55,000 communities, small utilities across the country. And so um, a lot of times they communities talk to each other and, you know, they find out that, oh, RCAP is providing assistance to us. Um, have you contacted them? Why don't you reach out to them? They might be able to help you with your bylaws or your policies or your application for funding and things like that. We often get referred by um, the regulatory agency. If there is a community or utility that it's um, having compliance issues, they referred us to them to go, in, to go out there and help them. Also by funding agencies, sometimes they need assistance with, say, the financials to be able to put together an application and they don't know where to go. And so we, they, they get referred to us. The assistance um, the that cap provides is very holistic in nature on not only the utility side, but primarily on the utility side. And so we get a lot of referrals from different places. Um, you know, it, it really, the fact that we've been around for 50 years, we have created a name and a reputation and a trust. Honestly, we have earned the trust of these communities. And so our name gets around quite a bit.
1: Yeah, great, great point on the experience and trust. Can you can you expand on why experience and trust matter so much? And in-
2: definitely, I think that is probably our um, the backbone of the organization. When we're talking about small communities, um, and David here, we're talking about communities that are on average under two thousand, and a lot of them are lacking the capacity to be able to address a lot of their community needs it's not something that gets done overnight. It's not something that gets done in in one visit. So the trust is a big piece because we stay with those communities for years. I will say um, I was a technical assistance provider at the beginning of my career with um, RCAC, the Western Cap, for 12 years. And I worked with a lot of the same communities um, over the years. And so one of the things that, you have to keep in mind here with the kind of work and the, the audience that we that we work with. They're volunteers. These are community volunteers that we're talking about, and so they're not in the utility business. They're not utility professionals. So it takes a lot of time and a lot of handholding to get them to where they need to get it, be it a project or be it a compliance issue, whatever the case might be. It's a time. It, it's a. It's a. For them is an investment of love and commitment to their community. For us, it's a, a job of love and support to them because we need to make sure that they get to where they need to get um, and meet their community vision and long-term plans. So it doesn't happen overnight. So we do have a lot of experience doing that and staying with communities through as many challenges and they as they have. Sometimes we go into a community and we find Um, You know, an entire board, brand new board that has, you know, just kind of happened to be recruited into the utility. And the next time we go, we lose three, we lose two, and then we start again. So we do that a lot, you know, unfortunately, because we're not talking about professional, like I said, professional um, utility staff and, and operators and decision makers. We're working with a lot of volunteers that are doing this in addition to, you know, having a regular job or whatever else they have going on in life, we find ourselves um, becoming part of the community and becoming part of the solution for those communities.
1: Yeah, yeah. We've talked a lot, Jen. I mean, you've talked about the board uh, assistance, things like that. What are some other ways that RCAP works with small utilities?
2: So we work very closely with operators, um, for example, We have several of the regions have um, a very strong technical assistance side to them. uh, The Circuit Rider Program, for example, we work um, assisting them with, you know, sometimes breaks in the system, the the treatment plans, um, things like that. We have in some of the regions work very closely with tribal communities. So we work with tribal council. We work with billing clerks sometimes to set up their, their books, to set up their billing systems, to set up policies with with boards and things like that. So ICAP is very comprehensive in their assistance to utilities. So it can come anywhere from, from the billing clerk to the operator to the meter reader to the to the board itself and everything else in between, including the consultants that are providing assistance to this communities. Sometimes we get involved in that because like I said, when we're talking about volunteers, they really don't know how to advance the project. So we become, if you, um, you wanna give it a name, I guess an interpreter of how we communicate between the consultant and how that, does that translate into a solution for the community? Or sometimes we become the link between the funder and the community, the, uh, the regulator and the community and or the utility. So we, we wear a lot of hats when we work with communities.
1: Got it. Now you've mentioned technical assistance a couple of times. You you indicated earlier that you were a TAP for twelve years. So what 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 are some of the functions of a technical assistance provider?
2: So um, that is that is really the heart of the RCap. Um, the technical assistance providers we have over three hundred and fifty across the nation. Some of the functions. Um, think of it as a, as a general doctor assessing what the needs of the utility is. So we do an assessment initially to figure out what the challenges are. Sometimes we might get called, um, for example, for a compliance issue. Um, let's just say that they have a compliance with arsenic, and I'm totally making it up. But the compliance side only speaks to one side of the problem. The compliance itself might just be a symptom of the problem. The problem might be, you know, the fact that they, they, they haven't had a board, that they haven't had any policies, that they haven't had the rates in place to be able to make decisions on how to begin to address this problem. So assessing assessing the overall condition of the utility so we can begin to figure out, am I, as the technical assistance provider, the right technical assistance provider for this utility, or do I need to bring in some other specialized skills to help them um, get to where they need to get? So we have... Like I said, an assessment tool that help us figure out how to put together a work plan and and prioritize where the needs are and what are the highest priorities that need to be addressed, especially when we're talking about compliance challenges. It's very important to have a good diagnostic. So it's it's like I said, it's kind of like the general doctor, and then from there we bring in the specialists to begin to address the specific issues. So is it a technical issue. So we bring in someone with the skills to address that very specific need. One of the beauties of RCAP is that it's such a broad network that as a technical assistance provider, which I was for, for many years, I didn't have to know it all. I just knew, I just needed to know who to call because I wasn't required to be the expert on everything. I needed to know enough to be able to make a good assessment of the needs of the community and then figure out where do I pull resources who do I need to bring in to help this community address their challenges? And so technical assistance provider wears a lot of hats, but they certainly don't have to be an expert on everything.
1: So how, so how does RCAP then support development of small water system infrastructure projects? Uh, you know, is, does the technical assistance provider kind of identify the need and then you, you, it's an infrastructure need? And so that's, that's kind of the connection I want to make at this juncture.
2: And and your question is very timely. Obviously, right now, we're going we're having such a huge influx of federal funding, and the role of the, the technical assistance provider is so critical. So I'm going to walk you through the process of how a technical assistance provider or how RCAP supports the development of infrastructure projects. So, for example, there is a community that hasn't been able to address, say, their um, uranium issue. They have a, a compliance issue. So where would RCAP um, come in? So RCAP would then begin to have the conversation with the community about where are they in the process? Because right now we're getting contacted a lot by communities that are hearing about all this federal funding. But what are the needs are they they're trying to address? So this is this, that's part of the initial conversation like what are you trying to address? What are the needs of the utility? Where are the needs of the community? From them, we're, from there we figure out, do they actually have a project identified or do we need to help them with that? It can be as, as early as begin to identify what the project is, what the need that the project is trying to address. So we can start at that level. Sometimes we even start beyond that, um, For example, there is a community that are not organized. Let's say that they don't have even an organizational structure. They're not organized under, they're not recognized by the state. So we work in communities at that level. Sometimes it's 25 families and they have never been really registered or recognized by by the state wherever state they're in. We might be able to help them with that part, getting them organized um, getting their their corporation documents in place, getting them registered with the federal government to make sure that they are able to receive federal funds, so it really depends on where they are, so it begins from that point, and then from there we start looking at financials do they have to have do they have anything in order? do we need to help them put together let's say a, a budget, an operational budget, an operating budget to figure out. Because that's going to help them qualify for either grant or, or, or loan. Um, so there's that piece, too. You know, where do they live? Um, where do they fall in the, um, in the census tract? Because that's also going to determine the MHI. Do we need to do an MHI survey to make sure that they qualify for more grant versus loan? We do a rate analysis to determine once the project has been identified how much can they actually afford? Is this project affordable or is it going to, you know, bankrupt the community? We work with them on a the procurement process because now they need to hire an engineer um, and other professional services to get through this project. Maybe they need to have um, an environmental company to come in and do the environmental assessment. There are certain requirements that need to be filled out. So we go through a checklist of things that they need to complete to help them get to the application. Let's say that they were successful in securing funding from federal or state, whatever the case might be. Funding from from public sources normally come with a set of restrictions. In the average utility, utility size that I'm talking to you about, they normally don't have the capacity to begin to address all of the requirements. Um, let's say that they get funding from USDA, it's called a letter of conditions. Sometimes it's as many as 18 pages, and there are a lot of conditions that need to be met. So we support the utility through the process of meeting those requirements. It could be things such as providing training to the board. It could be things such as um, developing a, um, an emergency response plan, a vulnerability assessment, developing a rate structure, helping them with the implementation of a rate structure. So it's all the things that need to happen to help communities, you know, get that funding. Our work doesn't end there. That is, if you will, that's the preliminary work. Once we've gotten that to that point, then we help them, we stay with them throughout the, um, the development of the project, because a lot of our communities do not have the project management skills. And so... We try to fill in that, that void and work with communities to make sure that at the end of the day they get the project that they need. We don't want them to end up with the um spaceship when in reality all they need is let's say a four tourists to get to where they need to go. Um these are federal dollars, so and we're federally funded. We haven't really talked about that, but our funding comes from USDA and EPA, the majority of our funding. And so we have the responsibility to also make sure that taxpayers' dollars are being, you know, um, looked after. And so we work with the communities to make sure that they get the project, that the project moves along, that they, you know, would try to make sure that they stay within budget and within, uh, within schedule. So that's, that's another very important function. And then on the back end of the project, David, what we also do is make sure that they are actually able to operate this new investment. Can they operate it? Can they own it? Can they afford it? What are the things that they need to put in place to make sure that all of those things are there and they actually that are they are actually able to address the problem that was identified maybe three years ago, maybe four years ago, whenever that was, are we actually able to walk away and say we did what we were tasked to do and so we are involved with communities and supporting them through the um, the entire infrastructure project from. Pre-development, development, implementation, and all the way to completion.
1: Yeah, you'd you'd mentioned that you know sometimes communities don't have the capacity to take okay. them, take on the projects, and they may not might not have the capacity to to operate the project once it's in place. Why is what is the struggle, or why is it so difficult to develop that capacity in smaller um, uh, smaller systems?
2: It is very difficult because of what I um. You know, what I said earlier about sometimes you lose the staff that you're working with. Sometimes you lose the board members that you do. You started to work with. Because um, these projects take a long time. And so people move on. You know, things change. So developing the capacity, it's, it's very difficult. But I think that one of the main challenges that small utilities have has to do with the lack of economies of scale. And what I mean by that is, is that our, unfortunately, our small utilities come the training ground for, for operators, for larger, uti- for larger utilities. So they're constantly losing um, operators to a large u- utility. It's not uncommon. So, you know, they, they stay with a small utility for one or two years, and then they move on. And you cannot blame them for doing that. You know, larger utilities are obviously going to be able to offer them higher salaries and benefits, which a lot of our, our, our small utilities are not able to. So developing the capacity is a challenge in the sense that we're not able to develop the capacity and hold it in place, retain it in place, because we don't have the economies of skill to offer those things that everybody looks, you know, to make sure that they provide for their family a good salary, and the benefits. Small utilities are really, really challenged with that.
1: Yeah. So how does regionalization play in? uh, I mean, do you look for efficiencies between, you know, know, systems that may not be interconnected but are proximate or close by?
2: Yeah. Regionalization is, is very near and dear to my heart because it's something that I have been doing for about 15 years. And it's really one of the many tools that we have in our toolbox to help communities develop that capacity and, and sustain that capacity. And, and you're correct. There are cases where physical inter, first physical interconnect, it's not possible. It's just, you know, physically not, not viable, not a viable solution. But that's where it, it, um, it calls to think outside of the box, you know, bring in um, contractual services where you can bring multiple utilities together and maybe share the cost of an operator or more than one operator, share many costs, not only on the operator side, but also on the financial side. Um, Sometimes we work with communities to buy, for example, say metering program or say metering um, software program or billing system or whatever the case might be so that, you know, we can begin to have some uniformity and redundancy building some redundancies and and efficiencies in in operating and so regionalization has the potential to address a lot of this um very localized needs but it really boils down to the the the, um the leadership sometimes the leadership is not willing to to explore that as a as a solution we one of the things that I, I'm always inviting our technical assistance provider to do, because I did it myself for, for such a long time, is we hold the big picture of an entire region. For example, we know so much about everybody that is within that region, you know, um, where they live, where they work, what the needs are for the communities, how many um, connections they have. Sometimes they even, we even know what their budget is and what they can and cannot afford, and so Sometimes we're the, the catalyst that begins to env- or brings people to, to have those conversations about, you know, you all are, there's seven of you and the seven of you are have the same engineer, um, basically same conversation, you know, seven days a week, different meeting. You have the same um, auditor, you have the same accountant, you have the same attorney. And so sometimes it's on us to begin to have that conversation. Sometimes those conversations are very difficult to, to engage in. Sometimes communities are not ready, but I feel like we have the responsibility to at least plant the seed. They normally, in my experience, they might come around in a year or two when they realize that you know they're out of solutions and they really don't know how, how, to, do it alone, how to do it alone. And so they reach out to us to help facilitate those conversations. So regionalization definitely is one of the most powerful tools that we have to help communities achieve sustainability.
1: Yeah. You know, you've identified, Olga, that leadership is one of the challenges. What's, what are some other challenges affecting small systems?
2: Sometimes um, their own mindset. Um, I love rural communities, but there is this um, perceived notion that, Time sits still in their communities. The rest of the world is changing, changing, but their communities are not. And that's not true. I mean, change is happening right under our feet. That's true for all of us. And so embracing change, I think that the opportunity that we have and and the one thing that we do at RCAP and sometimes we probably need to do more of is um, really encouraging those community leaders to to embrace some of that change, as, as uncomfortable as it might be, because what worked forty years, thirty years, doesn't work anymore today. Um, that's definitely one of the one of the challenges that I see. But the the biggest challenge, well, there are too many big challenges. But I think one of the challenges that we have is um, the regulatory piece. You know, the 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 regulatory. Framework that we operate uh, at the national level, specifically talking about drinking water, drinking water, Safe Drinking Water Act, and the Clean Water Act. Those two um, challenges are very big on small communities because, going back to what I said earlier, the lack of economies of scale. Communities are really, our small utilities are really being challenged to meet all the regulatory requirements, especially when we're talking about volunteers, and so. That is kind of a, a scary thing because we have to think about at what point in time is water not going to be it? at a time. Um, the cost of treating, um, the cost of sampling, all of the regulatory requirements that might not have a big impact on, say, New York City or some of the bigger, big utility companies in the country. But the impact on those small communities is really, really choking them. And so that is, that is one, in my mind, one of the biggest challenges that we have. Obviously aging infrastructure, you know, most of the utilities across the country are pushing 80 years, 60 years. Um, Some of them happened even before the Safe Drinking Water Act, but even those that happened after, we're already, you know, getting close to 50 years, I mean, over 50 years at this point. And... A lot of them were put in place by federal grants and federal programs. Well, they have outlived their life expectancy and the numbers have not changed. What I mean by that is that a lot of the communities have not grown in population. In some cases we're talking diminishing population. And so it makes it very, very difficult, if not impossible for us to qualify for funding. The current funding um, requirements and, and expectations are not designed for small utilities. And so we are constantly pushing up that boulder um, or pushing that boulder up the hill. How do, we, how do we qualify those communities? And that's why regionalization sometimes is really the only thing that makes sense. Or else, you know, the cost of water, it becomes forbidden for them. So, Olga, let me ask
1: you this uh you mentioned change is you know or accept, acceptance of change and being open to change what what how do you see smaller systems uh and their interface with uh the increasing role of technology in water utilities?
2: Well, I think we're it's just like everything else, David. Technology is such a big part of our lives. um There is so much that you can avoid but then there's a the reality that we have that, you know, we're being pushed in that direction and small utilities are not the exception. Um, we try to advise communities and utilities based on their own abilities to manage what they do have. It's like, like, for example, the other thing that we need to be sensitive to cybersecurity, you know, in years past, it wasn't such a big threat, but it is. And even for, and, and nobody's exempt for that. So it's kind of, it's kinda of scary to think that a SCADA system, for example, can simplify the life of an, an operator and be able to do more free him up to do other other things. For example, it's the same thing that will possibly compromise his ability to protect the utility and do more for the utility. So it's really um, it's really, we have the responsibility to help the utilities evaluate you know, what makes sense, what is viable and what is not, because we don't want to um, help them or, or invite them to go down a, uh, down a path that might become um, a vulnerable situation for, for the entire community. So utilities are hesitant. Um, they're hesitant on I'm implementing new technology but at the same time, they know that sometimes that's really the only way that they can become or, or be more um, sustainable, I guess, over time if they really wanna want to move forward. But yeah, the technology is it's kind of a very individualized conversation um, with every community.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, you've also talked about, for example, operators working at smaller systems for a year or two and then moving on to larger systems. And I I want to explore the role of human capital and how you see that, you know, factoring into um, uh, the sustainability uh, to borrow another one of your words of rural America. So, um,
2: when I talk, when I always think about um, when I work in these communities, and when I see in, in these communities, when, when I reference specifically the human human capital, David, um, for example, let's just talk about the funding that we were discussing, or that I was talking about just a minute ago, the um, all the federal funding that is coming. That particular funding. And in most funding that we that we work with, probably close to 90% of it or higher, it's very specific to physical infrastructure. We're talking about building, in the case of utilities, obviously, building distribution, um, installing distribution lines, um, building storage tanks, maybe drilling some wells um, on the water side and, and then the wastewater side and, you know, transportation and all of that. We're talking about infrastructure projects that are tangible in nature. But to me, the the, the part that we're not investing in is the human infrastructure that will support all of those projects. And I think um, I've been saying this for a long time. If we don't begin to address the sustainability part of a utility to make sure that all those infrastructure investments are taken care of, then we really haven't done our job. You know, when we have such huge amounts of funding that are dedicated to physical infrastructure, but not a whole lot of it going into the human infrastructure side of those utilities or those entities, to me, it begs the question about we're missing a a very critical piece of the infrastructure picture. And so we've been having the conversation beyond the federal government with private investors and others that are interested in beginning to address that because if we're not thinking outside of the box and if we're not developing the, um, the leadership of those communities to begin to address, you know, the sustainability of a community in my mind, it's beyond the water and the wastewater. Granted, water and wastewater are so critical and integral to the sustainability of a community. But what other needs does the community have? Um, as an example, we can we can, you know, just reference the, the recent history with pandemic, and I still we're not completely over that. But a lot of a lot of people moved back to, to rural America because they were able to to work from, from our uh, school. We you don't have the infrastructure to support the other needs that are beyond the water and wastewater. And sometimes even that infrastructure is not there. We're missing an opportunity. And sometimes it begins with the vision it begins with um, dedicating the, the resources to, to develop the leadership, to develop the capacity um, and the workforce in those communities. So to me, the human capital or the human the investment in human infrastructure, developing the human infrastructure is a missed opportunity.
1: That, that's, a, that's a great point. Um, we started off today talking about the 50, 50th birthday, essentially, of RCAP. And I think your last comment and kind of you you mentioned vision, that that naturally uh, starts looking to the future. So let let me ask you this about the next fifty years of RCap. What what's your vision for the next fifty years of
2: RCap? My vision um, for RCap, and my vision is it's really it comes together as a result of working in in, in rural America for such a long time. In rural America, being the backbone of the of the entire country is that we need to look beyond the basic infrastructure to be able to create sustainability. We cannot be at the table and have a conversation about sustainability if we are ignoring all the other needs our rural America communities have. And so I see us, RCAP, moving in that space to begin to have more of the conversation, be part of the, um, the conversations around broadband, workforce, economic development, regionalization, leadership, and so many other things that our, our rural communities are lacking. We need to be able to bring solutions and be able to be the resource connector for those communities to really, really be sustainable.
1: Got it. That, that's a great vision. Um, so Olga, I'm going to give you the floor now if you would like to provide uh, just kind of a, to sum everything up and provide kind of a leave behind
2: message. Well, I'm just like, I, I would like to say that, you know, um, rural America, as I said before, is the backbone of this country. And so we need to invest. We need to um, be ready to support and to make sure that, you know, sustainability really does happen in, in those communities and that they are resilient and that we are there um And when I say we, I'm talking about RCAP and RCAP regions to be able to support those communities and materialize those vision for those communities. So really looking forward to doing more of what we do and expanding our services to be able that our communities do thrive through through climate change and whatever other challenges they have. So really, really appreciate the opportunity and um, look forward to having people contact um, us through RCAP. Uh, we have our obviously our website, so please do reach out to us.
1: Great. Is there any other way that for for folks who want to uh, uh, learn more about you and RCap uh, that they can? So, for example, what's your website?
2: So we are. We can be found at www.rcap.org. You can find us there. There's a lot of good material, um, a lot of resource material actually for primarily for utilities, but there's a lot of information about you know the work that we do our board and, and what makes up the great RCAP organization that we are. Perfect. Well,
1: Olga, again, thank you so much. You've been fantastic today. Uh, and I really have appreciated your, uh, you know, your insights and observances uh, concerning uh, rural America and, and you're doing great work at RCAP. So thank you so much for coming on and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you for the opportunity. All right. Bye, Olga. Bye. Well, I really enjoyed that conversation with Olga. She's got a great handle on the challenges facing smaller communities and how those communities need assistance. And I thought her observations on regionalization and human infrastructure in particular were very insightful. And I'd love to know what you thought about that interview. Please check out the show notes page for this uh, information and links on the episode. Just Google the Water Values podcast, click the first link that comes up. That's our home on the web that uh, Bluefield Research is kind enough to give us. Again, Bluefield Research and the Water Values LLC are not affiliates. We just have a joint marketing arrangement as part of that. We have a home on the web through Bluefield Research's site. If you still use Twitter, you can tweet it, or if you still use X, maybe, you can tweet about the podcast using the hashtag Water Values, and you can tweet at me using my handle at DTM1993. You can email me at david.mcimsey at com, and you can sign up for the newsletter at that landing page as well. Thank you again for tuning in, and I hope you make it a great day. Plus, I want to give a huge thank you to our sponsors again. Sponsors of the Water Values Podcast include Black & Veatch, Trinix, Mentor APM, Woodard & Curran, Interra, Xylem, and the American Water Works Association. This show would not be possible without those great companies and industry leaders. And again, thank you for listening and for subscribing to the Water Values Podcast. Your support is truly appreciated. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it.
2: the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me.
1: Well, thank you for tuning in to The Disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Indiana and Colorado, and nothing in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or with anyone else. Additionally, nothing in this podcast should be considered a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer that finds water issues interesting and that believes greater public education is needed about water issues. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water.